What a powerful story, right? And I know some of you have seen that video. We showed it a couple of summers ago, and I'm so glad that you are here with us. We showed that video a few years ago when we did a series on forgiveness, and I just really felt led to show it again because uh, she reiterates the points as we talked last week about letting go of our grudges. She really reiterated a lot of the points that we brought to you last week that I, that I brought to you from the Lord's Word. Uh, in so many different ways, and uh, just powerful, and so powerful that it's interesting that news stories like that, the world takes note of that kind of grace and mercy, right? Whenever that is so evident, and, and uh, but, but you know, whenever we showed that a couple of years ago, the reason I wanted to show it to you again today, for those of you who have already seen it, I apologize for the redundancy, but I, I was really just captivated last time, uh, and thought about this last time, and, and was glad to bring this back up. From the viewpoint of the offender, I really just thought about that. What about when you're the offender? What about when you're the one that has, that has wronged or harmed somebody or you're the one that has done something horrible, you know? And, and the bottom line is this, is that I know most of us who are here today, we, we can perhaps not relate to the fact of, of, of his sin, of taking somebody else's life. But it was interesting to me to see just repentance in his life, to see uh, attempts at restitution. Obviously, he can never bring that, uh, her son back. But, but just seeing that there was remorse and seeing that he even used this word. He said, in his own words, I, I was befuddled by her own kindness. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to, you know, how do you handle it whenever you're the one who is the offender? I just was thinking, what must his guilt and shame that he has dealt with in his life as part of those consequences of his sin, what must that have been like and probably still is even today at certain times in his life? And, you know, thinking at it from the point of the offender, what about when you are the one who is the offender and the struggle that he, he said, I'm, I'm trying different ways to try to make things better and to use this pain I've caused for good in some kind of way. But how do you do that? How do you handle it when you're the one who is the offender? And the scripture says this, right? Again, we may not relate in the sense that you've probably never taken somebody's life, right? But, but the scripture says this in Romans chapter 3, it says very clearly that, that we all have offended God. Amen, right? That we all are guilty sinners, that we all uh, have fallen short of God's, what it says, God's glorious ideal of, 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 of right, of the only one who has ever been sinless and without guilt is Jesus Christ himself, right? And, and, and the reality is that many of us go through our lives, even as believers, some of us who have already uh, received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in our life, and then we still wrestle with sin, all of us do, and many of us live with guilt throughout the entirety of our lives, and just as an unforgiving heart that we talked about last week can prohibit you from moving into the places where God wants you to go as far as his destiny and plans for you, I want you to understand that a guilty heart can also hinder your progress when you, and can weigh you down. Guilt can be one of those things. By the way, guilt is a condition that we are guilty. Shame is the emotion that comes out of that. Shame is what we carry with that, and we have cycles of shame. We all kind of deal with it in different ways, uh, and, and some of us will, will try to blame others. Some of us will deny. Some of us will, will look to things to self-medicate, 
uh, we'll do all of these things uh, in dealing with our guilt in different kinds kinds of ways. And it's something that can just absolutely be overwhelming to us whenever we're dealing with a guilty conscience. We're dealing with a guilty spirit or the Lord's trying to get our attention about something. Hope and I have two kids. Most of you know that who know me. Uh, my son Luke is, is 20. He's in here. He's in the back. I asked his permission to share this story. Okay. And uh, my daughter Trinity, she's 15. Uh, and Hope and I were just laughing the other day just about how incredibly different both of them are, how God's made them differently, how different they are in handling different things. And I'm very thankful that both of my kids, uh, I praise the Lord for this, for real, that both of them have a sensitive spirit to the, to the Lord, that they both have a soft heart to God as God speaks to them about things. And, and, and uh, you know, they, they are both sinners. Uh, as, as I've shared that before, my children sin just like your kids do. Uh, they're not perfect because they're pastor's kids. They have, uh, they have sin just like others. But Hope and I were laughing the other day about how differently our kids respond to things. It's just funny how different they are. They have the same DNA, but they respond differently. Trinity... When she was younger, and even still today, if she does something that is wrong or out of line or she sinned in some kind of way, I, as her father, can give her, you will, you will relate to this with some of your kids, I can give her the look. And the look will crush her little heart. Now, it did so more when she was younger, all right? I'm just saying, now she can give looks back, all right? <laughs> But back in the day, I'd give her the look and her little heart would just go to a place of she's displeased dad, you know, and or mom. And, and I, I've been blessed with being able to give the look. My dad passed that along to me. If you know my dad, you can see that, right, clearly? And, and I could give her the look and her heart would just be broken. And she'd be this place of repentance. Now, let's just say that our son, Luke, okay, again, who is in here, the look, the, the look did not work for Luke. I would try the look, and Luke could give the look back, all right, in his younger days especially. Let's say with Luke, since the look never worked with him, with Luke, we'll say there had to be, shall we say, a more hands-on approach in discipline, <laughs> We could call it the five-fold ministry of Jesus that, that would have to happen in Luke's little life to be able to move him to a place of repentance. And, but one thing that Luke absolutely could not take, even still today when he's done something wrong, um, he does not have a very good poker face, and, 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 but, but what would just absolutely drive him crazy back in the day was the delayed discipline that he would get. If, if he could not take the guilt... The guilt would overwhelm Luke so much in certain ways that he just could not take it. The anticipation of the, the discipline that would be coming as a result of his guilt, he couldn't take waiting upon that. And one of our favorite Luke stories is when Luke was about four years old and he was at Walmart with his mother, okay, doing what, uh, and we would say he's at, he was at his full pinnacle of Luke-dom at that point, okay, at four years of age, and really was, was doing what a lot of kids at Walmart love to do, wreak havoc and cause parental misery. Amen, right? And that is what Luke was full on doing at this point, and Hope had had enough 
On that day, she had had enough, and she just pulled him aside. They were about to check out. He had broken every rule and all the expectations. She said, I, I had expectations, and I clearly went over with you uh, as we went in. And you, you have earned yourself a serious, hands-on, come-to-Jesus moment whenever we get home. When we get home, not at this moment. Now, I may have mastered the look in our house, but Hope has mastered the delayed discipline torture method, all right? And she would, would delay this. It was coming, but she would delay this, and Luke could not take it. The guilt and the anticipation was eating him up. They were checking out in the line there, and he is begging his mother to discipline him and to spank him at that moment. She's like... Can we please get this over? I have wronged you, oh mother, you know, or whatever he said. He probably didn't say it like that. But, but she was like, no, you're getting it when we get home. But he was just, it was eating him up. And so finally he said, well, if you're not going to spank me right now, then I will just spank myself. And he starts spanking himself in line. He's giving himself a spanking because he couldn't take it anymore. The guilt was eating him alive. It was eating him up. And, and, and Trinity, by the way, had one of those hands-on discipline experiences coming to her one time. She didn't have many of those because, again, the look would often get to her. But it was probably at the same store. And Luke, uh, because of the kid that he, that he is and, and he was then too, he told Hope that he would take Trinity's spanking for her on that day. I'm thinking it's because his bottom was so calloused and he was good, you know, and that, and that he was good. But Noel Coward, a famous British playwright, he pulled this interesting prank on a bunch of his friends, 20 of many of the most uh, famous and powerful men in all of London. He wrote an anonymous note to all of them that simply read this, just kind of messing with them, that said, everybody has found out what you're doing. If I were you, I would get out of town. How many of them do you think this affected? He said nearly all 20 got out of town, all right? We all can battle with guilt. Guilt can overwhelm us. We all can feel guilt about something at one time or another. Some of you may be carrying some guilt upon your shoulders today. Even as a believer, we can wrestle with guilt. And, and what will happen is many times we'll, we'll enter into sin and we think, I've, re, I've, re, I've confessed this sin so many times to God. I can't come to him possibly again. So then we, we get into this shame cycle. Have you ever been there? And it's this shame cycle. And again, sometimes we self-medicate. We might try to escape. Uh, we, might, we might blame others. We might compare ourselves to other people. Just watch a little reality TV to make yourself feel better about yourself. I'm not as bad as that guy. Our family's not as bad as that family. And we, we can do all kinds of things to try to cope with that guilt in different ways, try to numb out, whatever it may be. But the thing is, is that when we're honest and we all look inside of our hearts and we allow God to search our hearts, I mean, there are all things, we all have things that we've regretted that we've done, right? When we look back and many still carry guilt from that, even as believers today, some of you still carry guilt from that. Uh, and, and, and I can move into that shame cycle oftentimes whenever I'm feeling guilty about something. Uh, we all have had a chance to do the right thing and we chose to do the wrong thing. We all had an opportunity maybe to do something right in our parenting and we blew it. And, you know, as a, as a, as a dad now to a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old now, um, I, I look back on some of those moments where they were younger and I realized I really blew, some, blew it in some ways with them. 
Or maybe I didn't spend enough time. There's, we can carry guilt throughout our lifetime in different ways. And maybe for you, the voice of guilt is just wearing you out, weighing you down, just pressing down upon us. We're going to read a passage in a minute where you see there was a, there's a great man of God that felt that very way, where he was just overwhelmed and crushed, being crushed by the weight of his guilt as he was working through this. Maybe some of it for you comes through some relationships that went south. Maybe some things that you said that weren't right. Maybe you were hurtful to somebody and you've been feeling guilty about that and, and, you know, and you've tried to make things right. And, or maybe you did make things right and you've reconciled, but you still walk with guilt and with shame over that. And the enemy will use that oftentimes uh, in our lives and, and, and accuse us uh, before the Lord. And he's called the accuser of the brethren, right? And we struggle with this. And this voice of guilt is something that can weigh us down so much and certain individuals so much that that very joy and peace that are gifts of God for us, that God wants us to walk in, right? Filled with his joy, filled with his peace, where the world looks at us and sees something different like they did in in Mary's life, right? Doing a news report and even saying, if anybody had a reason to be bitter and angry at God, it's this woman. But She's singing praises to God. The world's noticing something about her, right? It's because she, she dealt with that area that was holding her back, which for her was an unforgiving heart. Now, that was a process of forgiveness. That didn't happen like instantly. That was a process that she dealt with. Well, for some people, it may be an unforgiving heart, but for some, it may be it perhaps is the guilt that is holding you back. Perhaps some guilt where mistakes that you've made are, are, are preventing you from moving forward into this place where God wants you to experience the fullness of the life that he has and the joy and, and this aftermath of guilt that we can carry in our lives is a serious thing and God takes it very seriously because it can rob us of his joy and his peace and can render us ineffective for him in a number of ways. The Apostle Paul wrangled with this in life. We're going to be in Genesis in just a minute, but he wrangled with this some. You can see in, 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 in his personality and some of the writings that he would write about being the chiefest of sinners, where Paul must have dealt with some deep regrets and some of the guilt and the struggles of shame uh, for some of the things that he did prior to coming to faith in Christ, where he persecuted and participated in the murder of, of, of Christians. And Paul would, would write, and, and you would see it come out in some of his writings about being the chiefest of sinners, but you would also see that he would talk about his, his struggle with sin and his struggle with the flesh. And in Romans chapter 7, he talks about this and he says, I know in verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, as he talks about this battle that's going on within him. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong. You ever felt this? But I do it anyway. Do you feel that, 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 that grappling that's going on within Paul? He says, I'm struggling with this. And then this is what really got me, and I, I think we can all probably say this together. Look at what he says. Say it with me out loud. Oh, what a miserable person I am. What a miserable person I am when I'm struggling with the, with the, 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 the guilt and the, and the sin and all of this, and, I'm, and it's weighing me down. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? He's saying, I am a guilty sinner. I stand convicted. Now, 
He's about to move into the, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible in Romans chapter 8, where he gets into saying, look what he says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the answer to this. I can't fix it myself. I can't be good enough on my own. I can't, you know, make amends, uh, you know, enough to finally make myself righteous before God. The answer is found in Jesus Christ. And we know as, as the story of the gospel is that Jesus took our sin upon himself, paid for all of our sin, and removed, as you sang a few moments ago, he paid it all, removed the stain of our guilt from our lives. Amen? and made us righteous, declared us righteous. But I know this, that even as Christians, as we still battle with the flesh, that passage leads into, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible passage. I urge you to read it. But Paul, and I think all of us as believers, sometimes we still live in this shame cycle, and we still battle with it. And we still live with guilt and we still carry guilt. And sometimes God is, is going to use some certain things in our lives to get our attention, to move us to places of repentance. There's some where we actually are guilty and need to repent of certain things. And we've been in this story of Joseph and his brothers, right? And, and I was thinking, I wonder as we looked at the beautiful story of his forgiveness last week, And we saw the reconciliation of these relationships begin to happen last week. And the forgiveness portion of this story and the process that Joseph goes through is such an example and so beautiful uh, for us to look at as an example in our lives. But I wondered about the brothers. I wondered about their, their response to the guilt that they must have dealt with and how they handled it. I wondered about it from their side. Don't you, as, as, as just as uh, O'Shea Israel, the offender in that video, how he was grappling with that guilt as well. And I haven't learned how to move past this. I'm trying different ways. And I haven't learned to forgive myself yet. And that's where a lot of people are. 20 years is a long time to keep a sin a secret. And they had sinned against their brother Joseph. They had sold him into slavery. They had, uh, had abused him and they had, they had thrown him in a pit and all of these things. And then they had even deceived their father Jacob and told him that he was killed uh, whenever a, a, a pack of animals got him and animals killed him. And, and, and this old man's heart was broken and they allowed that to go on for 20, year, 20 years covering up that sin. I just wondered in that 20-year period how often they must have dealt with guilt and shame. I wondered how many times God tried to get their attention through some of that. I wondered if they often rehearsed the voice of Joseph who was crying out to their brothers when they had abused him and had done these horrible things to him and sold him into slavery. They were plotting his murder and he's hearing all this and he's crying out to them, Brothers, don't. Please don't do this to me. I'm your brother. I wonder how many times they were awakened with horrible nightmares. I mean, we don't know. I'm speculating on that. I wonder how many times, you know, uh, they would see something that would remind them of Joseph and the guilt would overwhelm them. They carried that for 20 years, 20 years. I wonder if there were times where where some of them were breaking down in that guilt because that kind of guilt will crush you. That kind of guilt, if you don't come clean, it will wear you out. Scripture will tell us this in a minute. 
I wonder if there was a breaking point. One of them wanted to, let's come clean with Father. I can't take this anymore. I wonder how many of them tried to escape and use different methods to cope with the guilt, right? We don't have the story on that. You can look and see that some of them tried different methods, right? I, I, I just, I wondered about all of this, and it's 20 years later, and they've probably been agonizing every time they would think about him, think about Joseph, think about what they had done to him. 20 years later, and a famine has overwhelmed the people of, of these nations uh, that are around Egypt there. In this part of the world, this famine has struck, and, and Jacob had heard that there was food in Egypt. We're going to read this. He'd heard there's food in Egypt, and I wondered if when he mentioned Egypt, if it struck a nerve with them, <laughs> right? They, they had sold their brother to Ishmaelites who were trading slaves in Egypt. I wondered if every time they heard Egypt or thought of Egypt or something, I wonder if they wanted to come clean and others were like, we're taking this to our grave. We promised we would never disclose this or talk about this. And Jacob says one of his, my favorite verses in this entire story of Joseph in Genesis 42. We're backing up from 45 last week. But he says this, why are you standing around looking at one another? Why are you just looking at each other? They're casting glances back and forth. I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die the way that translates to me is when is one of you Einsteins in our family going to do something besides standing around looking at each other? That's kind of a hello McFly moment that's going on at this point. And I think this, I think Egypt perhaps was the last place they wanted to go. I don't want to go to Egypt. You know, I don't even want to think about this. I don't even want to think and contemplate this, but God, as we see, had other plans. God was going to move them into some uncomfortable areas that they weren't ready for. Maybe some areas they couldn't quite, we know they couldn't see at this particular moment as they're grappling with this. We can see it now because we're 3,600 years removed from the story. And we can see how God was, was going to transplant this clan of around 70 people in this big family that he was going to move them to this perfect incubator for them to grow to a nation of around 2 to 3 million in a 400-year period. And there's various reasons that God would remove them from Canaan at this point. They were starting to intermarry. They were starting, and God was going to remove them. And the Egyptians, you should know, would not intermarry with them. God wanted to keep them separate. God wanted to keep them holy. And, and, and God had his reasons for moving them. And so God wasn't about, as God had moved Joseph to Egypt and had placed him in this prime ministership now after much hardship. God wasn't about to let Joseph's heart of unforgiveness block his plan, and God is not about to let these brothers' overwhelming guilt block his plan of moving his people to this area in his sovereign plan where he was going to be taking them. So as we learned last week, in order for there to be reconciliation, and there has to be, first, there has to be some repentance there has to be repentance on the heart of the, in the heart of the offender. There has to be brokenness there. There has to be confession, admission, no more denial, no more blaming others. Just coming clean and saying, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And you need to know that these men, these brothers were very hard-hearted men. 
They had not dealt with this guilt for a 20-year period. It was eating them alive, I believe. And God was going to move them to deal with this. They were hard-hearted men. So how does God bring about a recognition of guilt in our life? How does God begin to speak to us about dealing with some areas that maybe we haven't dealt with and we need to come clean with or we need to make right? We need to reveal before God and, and make right with others. How does God begin to do this? Well, God used this in these brothers' lives, and he will often use these same kinds of things in our life as well. Number one, we see that God allowed them to experience adversity. God is not only sovereign over the feasts of our life, he is sovereign over the famine as well. And this famine, he allowed to afflict these brothers with this adversity as long as the hills were plush and grassy there in Canaan and the sheep were chubby and yummy, right, and were good. All this was going on. Their consciences could just stay in this complacent, comfortable place where they would not confront the guilt, they wouldn't deal with it. But when the creeks began to dry up and the sheep began to die and they started running out of food and their children were crying from hunger pangs, right? Sometimes God will use affliction and adversity to get our attention. He'll use those kinds of things. And, and, and this was what was beginning to happen. And, and, and by the way, isn't it interesting? God was going to force them to face their sin. They had no choice except to go to Egypt. That's where the grain was. They had no choice whatsoever except to confront some sin that was in their life and, and, and perhaps run this risk of running into their brother or maybe just dealing with it as they're on this journey. They're dealing with this. And, and, and here's just a thought that I had. You know, when we won't deal with sin in our life or something that is bringing about guilt within our life, when we won't deal with it, oftentimes it's not only us that's dealing with it and it impacts our families are affected as well. And so there's no doubt that their families were feeling this affliction because of their guilt. We already know from the story that whenever they got there, they got to Egypt, the, as we've backed up a little bit, Joseph recognized them. They did not recognize Joseph. How did Joseph treat them as he's still working through the process of forgiveness? How does he treat them? Harsh. He's harsh with them. He speaks harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies. He's dishing out to them exactly what they gave to him 20 years earlier. He even throws them in prison. You throw me in a pit, I'll show you a pit. I'm throwing you in a dungeon. Genesis 42, so Joseph put them all in prison for three days. They were reaping what they had sown 20 years earlier. It was coming full circle around on them now, getting thrown into the slammer for a few days when, when you hadn't done anything, that might get your attention a little bit. Some affliction was coming in their life. There was famine. There was prison. There were accusations. I mean, there was stuff that was starting to happen in their lives. It's kind of God's using this to awaken them. He's, he's awakening their seared consciences. He's trying to get their attention. Genesis 42, 21 says this, speaking among themselves, they said this, it's starting to work. Look, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. Do you think they'd been carrying guilt for a while? Long ago, 
long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And that's why we're in this trouble. They're starting to realize there's some discipline that's coming in their life. There's discipline that, 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 that is coming about. We wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben said, or Reuben asked. But you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. So the brothers are starting to be awakened to this. One of them still has a little bit of a hard heart and is still blaming. Can you see who it is? It's Reuben. You need to know that Reuben was as much a part of this as the others were. He didn't stop it. He's been keeping the deception going with the father for the 20 years. But he's still kind of blaming them. I told You know what he's saying? This is the way this translates. I told you so. And now this is coming all back on us. He's, stu- he's not quite contrite yet, is he? There's no contrition here yet. He still, his heart was still hardened, but God is actively softening up their hearts with adversity. And God will use adversity in our lives to break us sometimes. He takes us through a breaking process because he loves us. Something interesting happens, though. The affliction is followed up with this. And you'll find this to be true in your life, too, is that God will overwhelm us and God will surprise, he surprised them with his kindness. He's surprised, and not that we should be surprised or they should be surprised that God is kind. We are not surprised at that, but I believe they were feeling so guilty with what they, were, what they had done. They were struggling with this. Look at all the, 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 the good things that God allowed to happen in these brothers' lives. Joseph sent them home with extra grain in their sacks, and, and on their way back to Canaan, they took a break and looked inside the saddlebag, their saddlebags, and all the money that they had tried to pay for this grain was back in the saddlebags. They had graciously received it back. Ironically, the brothers who had sold their brothers for sil- their brother for silver are given silver back. Isn't that interesting? It's enough to make you go. Hmm. What is going on here? There's something happening here. They were, I like the, the word that O'Shea Israel used, they were befuddled. <laughs> they were befuddled at this kindness. In fact, they were frightened by it. Sometimes when God is gracious with us, we have a hard time believing it's real, don't we? We have a hard time, and, and it's because there's guilt. We feel guilty, and we're like, no, he's messing with us. Something's going on here, right? But look at what happens, verse 42, or chapter 42, verse 27. But when they stopped for the night, and one of them opened his sack to get grain for his donkey, he found his money in the top of his sack. Look, he exclaimed to his brothers, my money has been returned. It's, it's here in my sack. And then their hearts sank. Rather than being like, this is fantastic, He's blessed us back with money. No, their hearts sank. There's guilt. Their hearts sank, trembling. They said to each other, look at this. Say it with me. What do they say? What has God done to us? You think God's getting their attention? He is getting their attention. Interestingly enough, this is the first time in the entirety of this story the brothers have even spoken a word about God. Pharaoh has said more about God than these brothers. 
But now they're being, their consciences are being awakened to this. They are coming to this. God has allowed affliction in their life, but he's also shown them great kindness. Even when they would return to Egypt the second time, and this time they had Benjamin with them, right? Do you remember they went back to Canaan and, and, and Joseph demanded, they still didn't know it was Joseph, demanded they bring their, their younger brother on the next trip back. He held back Simeon. And he demanded this, and, and they get in an argument with Jacob about this. Jacob's like, no, you cannot take my beloved Benjamin. And, and, and you remember that part of the story? And now, now they, they finally, he relents, and he takes Benjamin, they go, or they go back to, to Egypt. And how are they greeted? They are greeted with a feast. They're greeted with a banquet. Joseph's assistant begins to usher them to a party. And this is it. This is incredible. They tell his assistant and try to explain about the money. We didn't take it. And the assistant says, don't worry about that. And you know what? Read it. It says, the assistant says, consider it a gift from God. A gift from God. Don't worry about it. He washes their feet. He takes care of their animals. He sets them up for a feast. They have this great feast. And, and they're being treated like foreign dignitaries at this point. The rest of the world is in a famine. And they are having more food than they can possibly handle. They're being blessed at this moment. All of this is undeserved grace. And favor of God has certainly at this point has it has them scratching their heads. What's going on here? God will use affliction in our lives to move us into, into places where maybe we've got grown comfortable and, got, and, and we need to repent and we need to get right with God will use affliction. God will bring affliction certain points to move us, right? But he also uses great kindness. They, they're struggling with his kindness, because their hearts are so hardened and they've been struggling with this guilt. They don't deserve any of this. Here's what God will also use. Maybe some of you will relate to this. God began to astonish them with circumstances. He began to astonish them with circumstances. They go to this meal and Joseph, they still don't know that Joseph knows who they are. Joseph seats them according to their birth order. He is messing with their minds. He seats them in this, in this circumstance is going on where he seats them from oldest to youngest. How in the world does this guy know is what they're thinking? What is going on? In fact, chapter 43, verse 33 says, and the men, whenever they sat down and they realized they were in, seated by order, they looked at each other in astonishment. What is happening here? These circumstances are going on. They're scratching their heads. How does he know our birth order? By the way, Benjamin, who was at this meal, Benjamin got five times the amount of food the brothers did. They had to have looked at that and thought, how does he, Benjamin didn't have anything to do with what happened to Joseph. How does he know? Why is Benjamin getting five Monterey melts from Whataburger and we are getting one? With onion rings and vanilla shake. Now you know what my favorite is, just saying. Um, why is he getting this? They're perplexed. They're perplexed. The caravan, 
after this feast, leaves to go back to Canaan, going back with Benjamin. They're taking him home to their father. They're blessed. They're overwhelmed with, with the amount. But Joseph has one of his assistants hide his personal silver cup in one of the sacks of one of the brothers. And what brother do you think it is? Benjamin. He puts it in Benjamin's sack. Joseph sends his guards to go search them and to confront them. And they're like, we're honest men. We'd never do anything like this. You can search our bags. And and the guards search the bags. They look into one of the sacks, and it's in Benjamin's sack. And they are blown away. What is happening? What is going on in all of this? God is rocking their world. He's perplexing them with these circumstances. Has God ever done that with you? Where, where God, you know, he allows us sometimes to experience adversity. He can stun us with his kindness without a doubt. What about perplexing us with circumstances where it's the same message? It's like day after day, he keeps coming at you with this message he's trying to get across to you and across to me. Maybe you open your Bible and you read. You're reading on your reading plan, right? You read and you get a message, a word from the Lord. You're like, it's a great message. Thank you. Lord. And then maybe you get in the car and you turn on the radio and you decide to listen to some preaching on this day. Other days you don't. And the preacher's preaching about the same thing. Have you ever had that happen? And then you show up to service and you get your socks all wet walking in, right? And the preacher's preaching on the same thing. It's like you're going, what is going on? Have you ever experienced that? Where God is getting your attention and trying to deliver a message to us. And he perplexes us with circumstances at times. We might call them, air quotes for those listening online, coincidences, right? We know they're not coincidences. We know that God orchestrates things in our lives and he's delivering a message and he's trying to awaken our hearts to certain things, right? And, and, and God wants to teach us things. He wants to move us into places of repentance because he wants us free from certain areas of our life and free from guilt, coming clean in areas that we've been concealing. And he's been trying to get messages across in so many different ways. I've had some of you accuse me of spying on you. Uh, you know, do you read my, my mail? What's going on? No, I don't. I don't know what's going on with you people. God does. He knows what's happening in our lives, right? And he's delivering his message. And he uses different ways. I've had so many occasions where I've had to ask for forgiveness and repent. And God has had to teach me hard lessons. And, and uh, I've been guilty of things that I needed to make right let me just quickly tell you, and some of you have heard part of this story, or you've heard this story, but there was one time, I've shared it before, it was back when I was around 21 years old, Hope and I were newlyweds, we were dirt poor, we were living in Brownwood, going to college, I'm telling you, we, we were poor, and, uh, and I uh, went to get some tires for a vehicle that we had, and, and to make the story not so long, um, when I went to get the tires, I got the bill, and it was way more than what the guy said it was going to be. That never happens, right? And, and I was freaking out because, one, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have the money to pay for that. And, and the ad said this. The fine print said this. Don't you love it when that happens, right? 
And, and I just, at that moment, and just being overwhelmed with, what am I going to do? I don't know how I can... I lost it on this guy, all right? I, and I, I, had, I had an anger problem back earlier at that part of my life where I really did not know how to handle anger. And, and the way that I handled it at that particular moment... By the way, as I was going to ministry school, the way I was, the way I handled it at that moment was I had choice words for the individual who was the owner of that place. And let's just say that there may have been curse words that were made up in that discussion with that guy. In my mouth, I just went off and I, after I exploded in my anger on that guy, I felt better. I felt better, and I left, and I was mad, and I had to charge that, and now we're in debt, and I was just furious. And so here's where God's going to begin to get my attention in, in this and bring some conviction in my life, because I really didn't think much about it until this experience happened. I got asked by one of my professors who was a pastor of a church in that area if I would preach for him while he would go on vacation. And I said, that'd be awesome. I'd love to do that. I'm looking for experience as a young pastor. Fantastic. And so I began to get a message ready on the, the sin of David and Bathsheba. And here is a passage I used in that message. Numbers 32. See if you've ever found this to be true. You can be sure your sin will track you down. Oh, the irony of this passage being in my message. I showed up to the church. I got there. The service began. The pastors in that kind of church sit up on the stage while the music's going on. And while the music's happening, I look out and I lock eyes, right square, dead set in the middle with who was it, church? Those of you who heard the story, Mr. Tire Guy, all right? That sneeze was perfectly timed, wasn't it? Who was it? Uh, Mr. Tire Guy, right there. And we're locking eyes, and I am in the back of my mind. I'm freaking out. I'm about to get up, and I'm about to preach on sin. I'm about to preach on this, and God is convicting me, overwhelming me. I am guilty. And it's interesting how, I'm telling you, I can do this. I'm preaching the message in the front of my brain. In the back of my brain, the whole time, I'm going, what are the odds? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Of all the guys who's right up front, who's looking at me, and he's got his arms crossed, and he's looking at me with this smug smirk on his face, like, I've got you. I just went to him after the service. It was the worst message I probably ever preached. Went to him. I just said, I'm really sorry about what I did a few weeks ago. And he just looked kind of, again, perplexed. And, and I said, you know, we had some words. I said horrible things to you. I, I was just very, very wrong, and I apologized, hat in hand. And he's like, I don't remember that or whatever. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> but God will use things like this because God was perhaps wanting to teach a young pastor that, hey, Pastor Bart, you can't go around cursing people when they make you mad and preaching the gospel on Sundays. <laughs> he tried to get my attention with that in a passage in James. It says, out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. But I wouldn't listen that way. And so he's like, let me afflict you a little bit. <laughs> Let, let, me, let me also show you some kindness in that he doesn't even remember. And then let me also perplex you with the circumstances in this. 
And God will use these things. He'll use these things. Why does he, why does he use these things in our lives? Is it, to, is it to be cruel? Is it to embarrass us? Does he take great joy in embarrassing us and, and, and bringing up these things that we need to get right with him? Why is he working in all the details of our rebellion and even in our hard-heartedness to bring him back to him? Why? Is it because he's angry? Is it because he wants to, to, to afflict you with, with this great embarrassment? Here's what I would suggest to you that Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 12, 7 says this. As you endure this divine discipline, divine discipline, isn't that powerful? Look at this. Remember that God is treating you as his own children. You're a son and a daughter of God. That's kindness. There's the kindness. And that he loves us so much, he loves us enough not to leave us in these places where our consciences can be seared. But he wants to move us through discipline, through these circumstances, through ways of, uh, to bring us to places of repentance. Why? So we can be more like Jesus and experience this as it says, look, God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his what? Holiness. You know what he's doing? He's making you more like Jesus. He's making me more like Christ. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. We're not excited when it's going down, right? It's painful. But afterwards. Afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest. For there to be a harvest of peace and a harvest of joy and all of these great gifts of God, there has to be some discipline sown in first. Divine discipline. He brings it about. And what is the motive? The motive is love. He loves us. He loves us too much to leave us. It's not a, an act of cruelty. It's an act of love. He uses circumstances to train us, to purify us, to move us into the place of the destiny that he has for us. By the way, this is exactly what he was doing. He loved not only Joseph. Do you, do we, we know this, right? He loved Joseph without a doubt. But do we realize this, that he loved those brothers too? In fact, it was out of the line of Judah that Jesus Christ himself would come from. He wanted them right too. He wanted to work in their life. He was confronting their sin. He was bringing it up. Part of our restoration process with, with God involves dealing with our guilt. So sometimes he troubles us with adversity and allows it. He's sovereign over everything. And there's nothing that, that, that passes through our life that is not passed through the fingers of God. And I know that that is, that is a hard thing to wrap our minds around. But God is sovereign over the feast and the famine. As we go through these difficulties, maybe in one now, and I'm not saying that God is, is punishing you. I'm, not, I'm just saying that when we go through afflictions, okay, what I'm saying is it's always a good thing to ask, God, what are you teaching me in this right now? What is it that you're trying to instruct me in? 
how are you trying to make me more like Jesus? I don't see it right now, God. And it's okay to even be honest about the way you're feeling about it with him, but are you teaching me something? And as he's beginning to soften our hearts in some cases and break us in some cases and purify us in many cases, are you getting my attention? The, the, there were so many Bible figures that they were, God would take them through this process, a breaking process. And David was one man, just quickly, as we know he had become. He was a man after God's own heart, but his heart had become hardened to the Lord, and the Lord was going to get his attention. He was carrying on in his guilt, unconfessed guilt, of his adultery, his deception, his conspiracy to commit murder. And, and you have to know that David, this had to have been eating him alive. In fact, he deals with it in Psalm 38. He says this, My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. I am exhausted and completely crushed. Some of you know what he's talking about there. My groans come from an anguished heart. If you keep reading, David is even talking about some of the illnesses that he's, it's probably stress-induced illnesses that he's going through. It's eating him alive. He can't take it. He's under a heavy weight, and then you get to Psalm 51, and he begins to confess and repent and come clean before God. And you see this weight begin to lift off of his shoulders. God uses affliction, no doubt, but he uses so much kindness, right, in our lives. Has God been kind to us, church, in spite of our guilt, in spite of our sin? Most of you, I think, probably have a place to live. You have shelter from the rain for a few moments. You know, many of you have nice vehicles. You drive. Uh, we, we have, uh, you know, wonderful places that we live. We've been blessed with children. We, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? God over and, and abundantly continues to bless us in spite of our sin and our guilt. And the greatest gift he has ever given is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen, right? In spite of our guilt. And you know that that God sent Jesus to pay the price on the cross, take all of our guilt and shame off of us where we deserve death and punishment and all, and take it all off of us and put it all onto him on the cross. What a gift of grace. That if we would believe in him, He would exchange all of our guilt for eternal life. You want to talk about putting money back in the grain sacks. Amen. This is what God does. He's so kind to us. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Romans 2.4 says... Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Look at this. Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? You know the way that translates is it is his kindness that leads us to what? Repentance. Repentance is this beautiful biblical concept that I'm just going to say this just real straight. I don't think we talk about enough 
in our churches today. It's not an ugly word. It's beautiful. What it, what it means is a change of mind, a change of life. His kindness is what leads us to life change is what it means. His kindness overwhelms us. He loves us. He's wooing us. He's drawing us to himself in spite of what we deserve. The Bible is just filled with these stories, and Joseph is just one more of them. Every detail in our life is working together in God's master plan to bring you closer to him and me closer to him, to work towards moving us towards the purpose he has for him. And this is what happened in the lives of Joseph's brothers after 20 years, after famine, after trips to Egypt, after the feast and the silver cup and the bag and all of this. God was using many ways to get their attention. And finally, the brothers began to own up to what they did. And interestingly enough, do you know who it was that began to speak up about it? Judah. Where's Jesus going to come from? Judah. Judah says, How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. They're starting to understand that God was convicting them, confirming them, and confronting them because he loved them, confirming his love for them. So they they began to confess. And maybe as you're here before the Lord today, we we come before our holy and our gracious and loving Father Maybe that's what some of us just need to do today is a time of confession, a time of repentance. Proverbs 28 says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive great mercy. They receive mercy. Guilt, it just pulls us down. It hinders us. We can't deal with our sins alone. We can't spank ourselves like Luke tried to, to make it all right. Jesus took, for lack of better terminology, the spanking for us, right? Jesus took our place. He forgives us generously. He forgives us, I don't have time to read these passages, but, but he forgives us completely. He forgives us consistently where he's interceding on our behalf constantly to the Father And this is the great thing here. And he forgives us freely. Look at this last passage. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he has purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us. Praise God. It cost us nothing. It cost Jesus everything. The grace is not cheap, folks. It costs Jesus everything. His grace that he offers us is something we don't deserve. We are so grateful for it today. I just want to invite you just to a time of prayer with me. You know, as I watched that video at the beginning again, the other thing I thought of was this. As our heads are bowed before the Lord and Our eyes are closed as we just have a time of reflection upon what you've heard. Even though our sins, and God allowed this because he loves us, our sins caused Jesus' death on the cross. Think about this. 
through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, he has invited us to not only live next door to him, but to live with him. Isn't that incredible? When we think about this, maybe you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You're in a relationship with him, but there's been some guilt you've been struggling with and Maybe you're in a shame cycle right now. Maybe there's something you've been needing to come clean with God about. And he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe today that you're just in this place as a believer, your relationship with God is intact because of what Jesus has done. But your fellowship has perhaps been broken because of some sin and some guilt you need to make right with him. This is the time right now. Just bring it to him. Come to the altar of Jesus. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a pastor. You go through the high priest who is Jesus Christ himself. The veil has been torn. Come into the holy of holies. You've been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. There may be some of you are here today that you have never invited Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And what we all need to understand is that we're all sinners. We all stand condemned. Without Jesus, we are guilty sinners. When we believe in Jesus Christ, Scripture says, to as many as believed Him, to as many as believed and received Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. When we believe, He takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, He washes us white as snow, and He declares us right and righteous. That's the grace of God. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ and His forgiveness, today you can begin a relationship with Him. Where you can say what Paul said, there is no condemnation in my life because of Jesus. Say something like this to him. Jesus Christ, I believe you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. I realize I can't save myself. I've tried all kinds of ways to maybe make myself right with you. Only you, Jesus, can save me. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, to come into my life and be my Savior. I place my faith in you. No longer in myself. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me, cleansing me of my sin. Lord, we are grateful for your kindness that leads us to forgiveness. We are also grateful, God, that sometimes you use affliction to get our attention. Circumstances. Lord, as your message has gone out today, I'm trusting that you are speaking into the lives of your people. We come to the altar. invite you to stand with me. We're going to close with a final song. And it talks about the altar of God. And I just invite you to come to that altar of God in your heart. Make this your prayer back to the Lord, just a prayer of response to what you've heard today.